0: Chapter 32 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Gladstone's Busy Leisure. Then came a season of what would have seemed to be extraordinary energy and overwork for any other man, but which was only a season of rest for Mr. Gladstone he turned his attention once again to theology. He wrote letters, essays, and even books on theological subjects, nor, in the meantime, did much escape him in politics or even in light literature. He allowed the outer world to know, although in becoming, guarded fashion, his opinion on this or that measure which was under discussion in Parliament, or on this or that subject of political controversy outside Parliament he did not volunteer these opinions. He certainly did not obtrude them on the public. But if he were asked for a few words of counsel or of guidance, he gave them in a helpful, friendly, modest sort of way. He read books of passing interest, even novels, and he did not disdain to say what he thought of them, if they contained anything worth thinking about at all. He seems to me like another Charles V sitting down in his cell in the convent of Saint-Just, withdrawn to all seeming from the outer world and its doings, and yet keeping himself closely informed of everything that was going on, and taking the keenest interest in the movements of that political life from which he had withdrawn himself forever. We in London followed all his goings and his comings, his writings and his sayings, with an attentiveness which never relaxed he went to biarritz he went to the riviera he talked with french public men and spanish public men he received friends at hawarden he kept up his position there as an active promoter of every good local movement we were all delighted to hear that his sight had grown better and that his hearing had grown better he sometimes buried himself in books and would work on a stretch ten hours in the day he made short voyages and appeared to enjoy them with a perfectly youthful activity for the reception of new impressions. Perhaps I cannot better illustrate the variety of his occupations than by mentioning the book, apparently of the most solid importance, which he wrote on Bishop Butler and Bishop Butler's Theology, and the article on Sheridan, which he contributed to the Nineteenth Century in June 1896. I am not qualified to say anything about the work on Bishop Butler, but I know at least that it created a great sensation in England, and that it was discussed and debated and replied to by reviewers and writers without end. The article in the 19th century on Sheridan takes up a subject concerning which I am better qualified to form an opinion. The article was suggested by the work of my friend Mr. Fraser Ray, already well known mr gladstone says to political readers as the author of a useful volume in which he associated the name of sheridan with those of fox and of wilkes and who brought out a recent biography of sheridan for the purpose of proving that full justice had never been done in this country to the memory of the author of the begum speech and the school for scandal mr gladstone thoroughly agrees with the views of mr fraser Ray, the path of a biographer he says may be a flowery path but it is beset with snares especially as to the distribution of his materials and the maintenance of a due proportion in presenting the several aspects of his subject these in the case of sheridan were especially numerous and diversified he was a dramatist a wit and something of a poet he won his wife by duelling and by a trip which might be called an elopement. In society he quickly grew to be a favourite, almost indeed an idol. He came into Parliament by means which, if open to exception and point of purity, were due to no man's favour but thoroughly independent. While a representative of the people he sustained in a marked manner the character of a courtier, though the scene of his practice lay at carlton house and not at windsor carlton house i should say was the residence of the prince regent afterwards george the fourth here have been enumerated parts enough to fill the life of an ordinary nay of something more than an ordinary man but interwoven with these and towering high above them were his claims as an orator a patriot and a statesman it is in these respects, and especially in the two last, which are the most important of them, that, as Mr. Ray considers, justice has not been fully done to Sheridan. His main purpose, therefore, is one of historical rectification. No aim is of more durable consequence, and I cannot but think that in a great measure it has been attained. I do not want to quote too much of this most interesting article it would be interesting and worth studying if it had been written by a perfectly obscure author there would not seem to be much on the surface of sheridan's character which could attract a man so profoundly earnest as mr gladstone but mr gladstone goes far beneath the surface and boldly brushes aside the commonplace and conventional notions of sheridan as a mere writer of plays an unpaid jester to the prince regent and shows him in his true rank as an orator of the highest parliamentary class as a statesman and as a patriot. I cannot forbear from quoting a few closing lines which Mr. Gladstone devotes to the memory of Mrs. Sheridan, the wonderful singer Miss Linley, who has often been called the St. Cecilia of her day. It is impossible, says Mr. Gladstone, to close this rapid and slight sketch Without one word at least on Mrs. Sheridan. One of the strong titles of Sheridan to the favor of posterity is to be found in the warm attachment of his family and his descendants to his memory. The strongest of them all lies in the fact that he could attract and could retain through her too short life the devoted affections of this admirable woman whose beauty and accomplishments, remarkable as they were, were the least of her titles to praise. Mrs. Sheridan was certainly not straight-laced. Not only did she lose at cards fifteen and twenty-one guineas on two successive nights, but she played cards after the fashion of her day on Sunday evenings. I am very far from placing such exploits among her claims on our love, but I frankly own to finding it impossible to read the accounts of her without profoundly coveting Across the gulf of all these years, to have seen and known her. Let her be judged by the incomparable verses presented to us in these volumes, in which she opens the floodgate of her bleeding heart at the moment when she feared she had been robbed for the moment of Sheridan's affections by the charms of another. Those verses of loving pardon proceed from a soul advanced to some of the highest gospel attainments she passed into her rest when still under forty peacefully absorbed for days before her departure in the contemplation of the coming world it seems to me that there is something in the tender and melancholy compassion and toleration of these kindly words not unworthy of the pen of thackeray mr gladstone wrote among other things an article on minor poets of whom he must have known a good many in his time but as we have already seen, he had known Wordsworth in his early days, and he knew Tennyson and Browning to the end of either man's life. Nobody could have admired more than I did Mr. Gladstone's versatility and activity as an orator and a statesman, but I confess that I am almost equally impressed by the healthy vitality of the man who at the age of eighty-six, having retired altogether from parliamentary life, can yet enter with so profound and practical an interest into almost every question which concerns men and women and can absolutely refuse to exile himself from any manner of controversy theological literary or political on which there was a word to be said in season in truth we never lost mr gladstone even when he had no longer a place in the house of commons or on the political platform on Monday, June 1st, 1896, the public of England were penetrated by an unexpected sensation. It came in the form of a statement made by Mr. Gladstone and communicated to the world by the Archbishop of York on the subject of the unity of Christendom and the validity of Anglican orders. It ought to be said in explanation of Mr. Gladstone's letter, that the question of unity or union among the Christian churches had been lately pressed upon public attention by Pope Leo Thirteenth. The Pope had addressed a letter to the English people appealing for something like a reunion with the Church of Rome. The letter was full of interest, was grave and dignified and sympathetic. A movement having for its purpose the same general result, had been going on for some time among clergymen and laymen who belonged to one section of the Anglican Church. Lord Halifax, who was the chairman of a great Anglican organisation, the English Church Union, had taken a prominent part in the movement. He went to Rome, had interviews with the Pope and with the Pope's counsellors and he endeavoured to ascertain how far rome on the one hand and the english church on the other were willing to advance toward a basis of union one of the questions which came up for discussion was that of the validity of anglican orders that is whether rome would or could recognise the right of an anglican clergyman to seek as such admission to the clerical order in the roman church if any change of opinion should lead him that way. Mr. Gladstone's letter concerns itself almost altogether about that one part of the whole subject, but his utterances are full of interest, even as regards the grave possibilities of the greater subject. The question of the validity of Anglican orders, he says, might seem to be of limited interest, if it were only to be treated by the amount of any immediate practical and external consequences likely to follow upon any discussion or decision that might now be taken in respect to it for the clergy of the anglican communions numbering between thirty thousand and forty thousand and for their flocks the whole subject is one of settled solidity in the oriental churches there prevails a sentiment of increased and increasing friendliness toward the anglican church but no question of actual intercommunion is likely at present to arise, while happily no system of proselytism exists to set a blister on our mutual relations. In the Latin Church, which from its magnitude and the close tissue of its organization overshadows all Western Christendom, these orders, so far as they have been noticed, have been commonly disputed or denied, or treated as if they were null. A positive condemnation of them, if viewed dryly in its letter, would do no more than harden the existing usage of reordination in the case, which at most periods has been a rare one, of Anglican clergy who might seek admission to the clerical order in the Roman church. It ought to be explained that the particular object of Mr. Gladstone's interest was the report widely spread over the world that the question of the validity of Anglican orders was then actually the subject of a formal investigation by the authorities at the Vatican. On this point, Mr. Gladstone goes on to say that very different indeed would be the moral aspect and effect of a formal authorized investigation of the question at Rome, to whichever side the result might incline it is in the last degree improbable that a ruler of known wisdom would at this time put in motion the machinery of the curia for the purpose of widening the breach which severs the roman catholic church from a communion which though small in comparison yet is extended through the large and fast-increasing range of the English-speaking races, and which represents in the religious sphere one of the most powerful nations of European Christendom. According to my reading of history, that breach is indeed already a wide one. But the existing schism has not been put into stereotype by any anathema or any expressed renunciation of communion on either side as an acknowledgment of Anglican orders, would not create intercommunion, so a condemnation of them would not absolutely excommunicate, but it would be a step, and even morally a stride toward excommunication, and it would stand as a practical affirmation of the principle that it is wise to make the religious differences between the churches of Christendom more conspicuous to the world and also to bring them into a state of the highest fixity so as to enhance the difficulty of approaching them at any future time in the spirit of reconciliation from such a point of view an inquiry resulting in a proscription of anglican orders would be no less important than deplorable Mr. Gladstone goes on to say that the information which he had received from Lord Halifax dispelled from his mind every apprehension of that kind, and convinced him that if the investigations of the curia did not lead to a favorable result, wisdom and charity would in any case arrest them at such a point as to prevent their becoming an occasion and a means of embittering religious controversy. Mr. Gladstone then sets out, very frankly, his own point of view. And now I must take upon me to speak in the only capacity in which it can be warrantable for me to intervene in a discussion properly belonging to persons of competent authority. That is, the capacity of an absolutely private person, born and baptized in the Anglican Church, accepting his lot there, as is the duty of all, who do not find that he has forfeited her original and inherent privilege in place. I may add that my case is that of one who has been led by the circumstances both of his private and of his public career to a lifelong and rather close observation of her character, her fortunes, and the part she has to play in the grand history of redemption. Thus, it is that her public interests are also his personal interests, and that they require or justify what is no more than his individual thought upon them. He is not one of those who looks for an early restitution of such a Christian unity as that which marked the earlier history of the Church. Yet he even cherishes the belief that work may be done in that direction, which, if not majestic or imposing, may nevertheless be legitimate and solid, in this by the least as well as by the greatest. It is the Pope who, as the first bishop of Christendom, has the noblest sphere of action, but the humblest of the Christian flock has his place of daily duty and, according as he fills it, helps to make or mar every good or holy work. Mr. Gladstone declares that he has viewed with profound and thankful satisfaction during the last half-century and more the progressive advance of a great work of restoration in Christian doctrine. It has not been wholly confined within his own country to the Anglican communion, but it is best that he should speak of that which has been most under his eye. Within these limits, it has not been confined to doctrine but has extended to christian life and all its workings the aggregate result has been that it has brought the church of england from a state externally of halcyon calm but inwardly of deep stagnation to one in which while buffeted more or less by external storms subjected to some peculiar and searching forms of trial and even now by no means exempt from internal dissensions she sees her clergy transformed for this is the word which may advisedly be used her vital energies enlarged and still growing in every direction and a store of bright hope accumulated that she may be able to contribute her share and even possibly no mean share toward a consummation of the work of the gospel in the world now the contemplation of these changes by no means unfortunately ministers to our pride. They involve large admissions of collective fault. This is not the place, and I am not the proper organ for exposition in detail, but I may mention the widespread depression of evangelical doctrine, the insufficient exhibition of the person and the work of the Redeemer, the coldness and deadness as well as the infrequency of public worship, the relegation of the Holy Eucharist to impoverished ideas and to the place of one, though doubtless a solemn one, among its occasional incidents, the gradual effacement of church observance from personal and daily life. In all these respects there has been a profound alteration which is still progressive, and which, apart from occasional extravagance or indiscretion, has indicated a real advance in the discipline of souls and in the work of God on behalf of man. Certain publications of learned French priests, Mr. Gladstone went on to say, unsuspected in their orthodoxy, which went to affirm the validity of Anglican ordinations, naturally excited much interest in this country and elsewhere but there was nothing in them to ruffle the roman atmosphere or invest the subject in the circles of the vatican with the character of administrative urgency when therefore it came to be understood that pope leo the thirteenth had given his commands that the validity of anglican ordinations should form the subject of an historical and theological investigation it was impossible not to be impressed with the profound interest of the considerations brought into view by such a step, if interpreted in accordance with just reason, as an effort toward the abatement of controversial differences. There was indeed, in my view, a subject of thought anterior to any scrutiny of the question upon its intrinsic merits, which deeply impressed itself upon my mind. Religious controversies do not, like bodily wounds, heal by the genial course of nature. If they do not proceed to gangrene and to mortification, at least they tend to harden into fixed facts, to incorporate themselves into law, character, and tradition, nay, even with language, so that at last they take rank among the data and presuppositions of common life and are thought as inexpugnable as the rocks of an iron-bound coast. What courage must it require in a pope? What an elevation above all the levels of stormy partisanship? What genuineness of love for the whole Christian flock, whether separated or annexed, to enable him to approach the huge mass of hostile and still-burning recollections in the spirit and for the purpose of peace? And yet that is what Pope Leo Thirteenth has done, first, in entertaining the question of this inquiry, and, secondly, in determining and providing, by the infusion both of capacity and impartiality, into the investigating tribunal that no instrument should be overlooked, no guarantee omitted for the possible attainment of the truth. He who bears in mind the cup of cold water administered to one of these little ones will surely record this effort stamped in its very inception as alike arduous and blessed but what of the advantage to be derived from any proceeding which shall end or shall reduce within narrower bounds the debate upon anglican orders i will put it upon paper with the utmost deference to authority and better judgment my own personal and individual and as i freely admit very insignificant reply to the question. The one controversy which, according to my deep conviction, overshadows and in the last resort absorbs all others is the controversy between faith and unbelief. This historical transmission of the truth by a visible church with an ordained constitution is a matter of profound importance according to the belief and practice of fully three-fourths of christendom in these three-fourths i include the anglican churches which are probably required in order to make them up it is surely better for the roman and also the oriental church to find the churches of the anglican succession standing side by side with them in the assertion of what they deem an important christian principle than to be obliged to regard them as mere pretenders in this belief, and pro tanto reduce the cloud of witnesses willing and desirous to testify on behalf of the principle. I may add that my political life has brought me much into contact with those independent religious communities which supply an important religious factor in the religious life of Great Britain, and which, speaking generally, while they decline to own the authority either of the roman or the national church yet still allow to what they know as the established religion no inconsiderable hold upon their sympathies in conclusion it is not for me to say what will be the upshot of the proceedings now in progress at rome but be their issue what it may there is in my view no room for doubt as to the attitude which has been taken by the actual head of the Roman Catholic Church in regard to them. It seems to me an attitude in the largest sense paternal, and while it will probably stand among the latest recollections of my lifetime, it will ever be cherished with cordial sentiments of reverence, of gratitude, and of high appreciation. The letter was dated Howardon, 1896. I have quoted much of Mr. Gladstone's letter because it is a document full of living and also of enduring interest. The earnest feeling which he threw into the question is proved by the evidence of the physical labor it must have given a man of his years to write with his own hand a letter which occupied two columns of the London Daily Papers. Of course, it did not escape controversy and censure. One of the London Daily Papers, counted amongst those most devoted to Mr. Gladstone, dryly said that the Christian reunion which begins at Rome will inevitably lose as much at one end as it gains at the other. The allusion is to the attitude of some leading nonconformists toward Mr. Gladstone's letter dr guinness rogers one of the most distinguished and influential nonconformist leaders and teachers in great britain indignantly denied that nonconformists had any sympathy with a state-established religion dr rogers declared that upon his sympathy the established church had not the very faintest hold he honored real christian men in the state church but for a religious establishment he had no sympathy and no respect. He declared himself puzzled to know how a great and subtle intellect, like Mr. Gladstone's, could occupy itself for a single moment as to whether the Pope did or did not recognize the validity of Anglican orders. What meant, he asked, this silly craving for recognition from Rome? what right have these anglican clergy who belonged not to a private church to betray the liberty purchased by this country by this weak and childish sighing after recognition by the pope many other distinguished nonconformist ministers talked in the same strain and at one meeting of nonconformists the mention of mr gladstone's name was received with some hisses which were promptly rebuked by the voice of the chairman and by the cheers of the great majority of the audience. I am not going into the controversy, but it is only right to record the fact that a serious controversy did arise. End of chapter 32